This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, crime spikes in cities across America. As the nation emerges from the pandemic, gun violence seems to be exploding. This week, the White House made it known that it is a priority. There are things we know that work to reduce gun violence and violent crime. Background checks, purchasing a firearm are important. Ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. These efforts work. They save lives. But solving the issue is going to take more than just words. It's going to take action. And you can't do it without the police. At a time when some Democrats are sticking to their message to defund the police. Law enforcement across the country needs to be defunded. And at a time when Republicans are refusing to honor the bravery of the Capitol Police on January 6th. It's been very difficult seeing elected officials downplay what happened. Some of the terminology that was used, like hugs and kisses and... uh, very fine people is like very different from what I experienced. I experienced a group of individuals that were trying to uh, kill me to accomplish their goal. On this week's episode with Policing in America at a Crossroads, I'll interview one of the most celebrated law enforcement minds in America, former New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton. The memories of police abuse, police overuse of authority, police misuse of authority, are so fresh, particularly in minority neighborhoods. And that's going to be the struggle to regain the trust of the community. But if we don't get a handle on the crime and disorder, uh, we're never going to regain the trust of the communities because they're going to feel that they're being policed inappropriately. In other words, not enough policing, not effective policing, and certainly not trustworthy policing. But first, former New Orleans Police Superintendent Ronald Surpass. He is a professor at Loyola University, New Orleans, and a frequent guest on CBS News broadcast because he studies the numbers and the trends. The trends are disturbing. The U.S. has more than 290 mass shootings in 2021 so far, according to the Gun Violence Archive. So what do you think is driving these spiking crime rates across the country? I think there's always uh, so many different variables in play. Um, I'm not convinced that COVID had much of an impact to begin with in other than property crimes and some violent crime reduction, but that has since passed, I believe. And the reason I would suggest that is a few reasons. The first one is if you look at the nature of the shootings, the crime scene pictures that are published in the media, and you read the reports that are being uh, shared about these shootings, they look very much like they have for the last 10 to 15 years. Young men, fighting over things that are sometimes incredibly hard to understand, 
other times just uh, escalation of incidents that go far beyond anybody thought. Those types of cases do not seem to have changed much. So I think we need to continue to focus on what's bringing those people to this point of using deadly force against one another. Finally, most often deadly force is used against people who know each other. And, and so why, if, if your theory is correct, why do you think those communities are seeing the issues that they are seeing? Is it unemployment related? What, what could it be? It could be many of the things that we've seen for a very long time. The uh, young men who are most often involved in fatal exchanges as victims or assailants tend to have very similar characteristics, underemployed, undereducated, not participating in the economy, over the age of 18. So oftentimes when we hear about summer employment for youth, I think that's a very good idea. But it's hard, you know, we have to understand, does that really impact this organiz- this group of young men who are using these ultimate acts of violence? And many of the people, unfortunately, who are the victims or assailants in deadly violence and non-fatal shootings, in fact, are very overrepresented in the criminal justice system with prior violent crime arrest uh, a lot of the time. So unfortunately, as a nation, we continue to see the same things that we've been seeing for a very long time. This summer and spring uh, has heated up. Uh, unfortunately, my hometown of New Orleans is now in about 18 months of double-digit increases in shootings and non-fatal shootings and a triple-digit increase in carjackings. That's over 18 months, Jeff, so it's probably longer than COVID and before and after. And you and I have talked about this spate of carjackings in the past and how it's mostly young people committing those crimes. It is. And to me, it's a it's a signal, you know, as a former police chief and police officer for 34 years, carjacking is a very brazen crime. It's it's a crime that's more often than not unassociated with friendships or familiarity, unlike murders and shootings, which tend to be associated with friendships or familiarity. And too many times we see the horrific story of a carjacking occurring and a young mother is with her children and the car is stolen and the children are in the back seat. Now, the good, if there's any good news in this, we often hear in cases like that, that the assailant will immediately kind of like get out of the car and say, I'm not interested in this anymore. But carjacking, which is a form of an armed robbery, still can be associated with a significant percentage, 10, 15% of fatal non-familiar exchanges. And, and that's very dangerous and scary for people, as it should be. And so, yeah, as it should be, if, if you're the Biden administration and this week you're focusing on crime in, in cities across America and you're pointing to part of the problem being gun violence, is that part of the problem in, in your view? And, and to what extent is that driving these numbers? I think there's, a, there's three things to think about. It is absolutely involved. First, the question of illegal use of guns is the question. It's not the legal, the Democrat, Republican, Second Amendment questions in my mind or in many police chiefs' mind. It's the illegal use of a weapon. Someone has a weapon using it illegally. Secondly, Dr. Gary Slutkin and Ceasefire has some pretty successful experience in using violence interrupters. That'd be the second thing to consider. And the third thing to consider would be looking at some of the work David Kennedy has done around group violence interruption. So it's a three-part piece. One, it's the illegal use of firearms, not whether or not these young men have them legally. It doesn't matter. They're using them to kill people. 
Secondly, violence interruption using non-police techniques to uh, cool violence in neighborhoods has a lot of evidence of support, Dr. Slutkin ceasefire. And then thirdly, David Kennedy's model around group violence reduction where police and prosecutors offer people, cities offer people an out of the criminal network. But if they don't come out of it, then using all available and legal resources to interrupt their violent behavior. Three-part strategy. And you think those kinds of strategies specifically work in these kinds of situations? I think we have a lot of evidence throughout my career in two major cities, and I think we have a lot of evidence that there has been some success when you approach that as a three-part process. Um, Every part of that process can improve and get better. I'm not suggesting that either one of them individually or collectively is the ultimate answer. There are still many other issues to be considered, economic, educational, et cetera. But when you focus as a government, when you focus on illegal gun usage, when you focus on using violence interrupters in a non-police role, if you will, and then if you focus on the complex investigations necessary to take down criminal enterprises that are using death and shooting, those three things tend to have shown some pretty significant success over the last 10 to 15 years. And here's the other thing, Jeff. As we're looking back on it, in these last few years, we've noticed the, we have noted that the nation is at a 30, 40, 50-year low in many crimes. It may be too early to tell among many criminologists if that trend is now beginning to change, but as one former police chief and someone who studies criminology, I think we ought to be very focused on hoping it's not going to change. Well, how much of the response to these rising crime numbers will federal intervention help? Or is this mostly a a local issue that local municipalities have to deal with? Crime is absolutely a local issue defined by local priorities. However, the federal government has vast resources that can assist local government. Uh, People don't think of Chicago, New York, or New Orleans perhaps as a local government because they're so big, but they don't have the resources, the depth and breadth of scientific resources, uh, firearm analysis resource, DNA resource, uh, computer forensics resource. And the federal government coupled with cities that are experiencing these, you know, the cities are obvious, right, Jeff? Just look at a map. They're the big cities. Um, the federal government's coupling with big cities to, a, to address the issue of uh, organizations that are involved in violence and crime, I think has been successful. I think it's been successful for decades and we can continue to refine it, but it can be successful again. When we come back, my conversation with Bill Bratton. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. William Bratton was New York City Police Commissioner two times. He ran the Los Angeles Police Department as well. I talked to him about his impact on policing over the last four decades, but also what's happening now in cities across America with this crime spike. Commissioner Bratton, what do you think is driving this spike in crime across American cities? Well, it's a subject of great debate at the moment. My own perspective is that in the case of New York City, which I'm most familiar with, but I stay in touch with a lot of my former colleagues in cities around the country, uh, the spike actually began pre-COVID. There's been a lot of... uh, discussion about did COVID create it, did COVID influence it. Uh, I think COVID certainly did influence it uh, in the sense that the court system in America basically shut down, uh, no trials, uh, uh, reduced number of prosecutions. We also are experiencing the continuing explosion of the availability of guns 
And that uh, is continuing uh, even in the middle of the COVID virus, that the purchase of guns kept increasing. I think we're also experiencing, again, in a number of American cities, the effects of some of the criminal justice reform initiatives that were beginning to be put in place before the virus and are really now taking uh, significant hold on the criminal justice system. These include the uh, bail reform initiatives that have uh, uh, been come nationwide now. Uh, a lot of criminal justice reform, some of that uh, accelerated in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, certainly. Uh, one of the frustrations I have is that a lot of those advocating in the wake of George Floyd's murders refuse to understand or acknowledge that policing had been going through very significant reformation before uh, they get it, got into the game. I'm also wondering if, if some of these crime spikes, could they have something to do with what's been called the Ferguson effect, which is cops slowing down, not being as proactive as they were in the past because of the protest, in response to the protest? There is undoubtedly uh, a reduction in police activity uh, around America and its many uh, Eight, almost 18,000 police forces. Uh, that's easy enough to document when you look at numbers of arrests, numbers of citations, traffic citations. Uh, some of that is uh, politically directed by mayors, uh, board of selectmen, et cetera. Uh, some of that uh, may in fact be on the part of the officers themselves feeling they'll not be politically supported or taking action that they might've taken in the past. There is no denying that uh, the turnaround of crime in the 90s was a result of, and since I participated in a lot of that here in New York and then in LA, that we embrace the concept of community policing, which was the idea of focusing uh, on the problems in various communities to include not only serious crime, and we began to focus on it in a much more uh, uh, significant way, but also for the first time in 20 years, uh, 70s and 80s, we had neglected to look at quality of life uh, crime, the, the things that disturb people in the neighborhoods, graffiti, street prostitution, street narcotics dealing, uh, gang on the corner out there all night long, uh, things that police uh, in the 70s and 80s were discouraged from dealing with. And uh, we have a combination of factors underway at the moment in which we have become less uh, uh, focused on the prevention of crime and more focused on responding to it. Police will always run to the, to the sound of the guns. They'll always run to the 911 calls. But some of the proactivity that was so evident in the 90s and the beginning of the 21st century that helped to turn crime and disorder around has slowed down. A lot of that is politically directed. That's the case in New York City and the case in many cities around the country. So a result is you're seeing an explosion of homelessness, the emotionally disturbed, and uh, the, uh, the uh, those disabled by narcotics on our city streets. As police are no longer proactively dealing with those issues. In New York City, by way of example, they disbanded the homeless outreach unit, the police department, a unit I created back in 1995 to deal with the problem successfully and effectively back then. They uh, did away with the peddler unit. So there's no enforcement of illegal peddling anywhere in New York City now. They were supposedly going to go to a consumer affairs agency, but they never took it over. They did away with buy and bust units. Those are the units that would go out and basically uh, buy drugs from people selling it illegally on the street corners and then arrest them. Uh, they stopped that unit. They also, in New York City, did away with the anti-crime unit. Those were the plainclothes officers riding around very specifically looking for serious crime and people with guns. So a lot of the proactive policing that had been the hallmark of the 90s and most of the 21st century has diminished. So we're in a uh, period of time when uh, uh, crime is going up dramatically. Disorder is increasing uh, very significantly in every American city. And uh, police are not being uh, supported 
where they try to do something about it, and in many instances are being directed not to do something about it. Are you endorsing a return to those policies? I'm endorsing uh, looking at what worked for us in the 90s and for 25, almost 30 years, kept New York the safest large city in the world. That crime went down every year, starting in the early 1990s, when we began to focus on serious crime. We developed the CompStat system. CompStat was all about the idea of the evolution of predictive policing and then moving toward precision policing so we could zero in on the hardcore criminals that were creating so much of the crime in New York City. We also had, at the same time, and this goes back to 1829, Sir Robert Peel, when he created the Metropolitan Police in London, had nine principles of policing. And if you read the nine of them, they are so appropriate to everything that's going on in America today. The first one is the basic mission for which police exist is to prevent crime and disorder. In the 70s and 80s, we changed from the prevention model to a response model, 911, how many arrests did you make, how many summonses you issue, and we paid almost no attention to disorder on the street. So that's why New York City and many other American cities looked as bad as they did uh, in the early 90s. And the importance of dealing with broken windows, as you described it, quality of life, is that's what people see every day. It's what makes them fearful of their neighborhoods, that the neighborhoods are not under control, the gang on the corner, the prostitute, uh, the homelessness taking up uh, the public parks. So they're afraid to go into the parks with their, with their children and the syringes on the ground. And we came to recognize, and I'm one of the principal advocates of it, that and I think one of the most successful, that you effectively have to work on both at the same time. Like a doctor dealing with a seriously ill patient, he's not going to just deal on the one issue that might kill you. He wants to also deal on the other illnesses that might influence your recovery. The challenge for police, and this is where we've fallen down, and which has created some of the criminal justice reform movement that is so uh, uh, much in vogue at the moment, is that we need to do it constitutionally within the law. We need to do it compassionately. Uh, and this is where we're oftentimes challenged with issues of uh, allegations of racism, indifference, sexism. And we need to do it consistently. The idea being that you shouldn't police in a different way in a minority neighborhood than you would in a white neighborhood. You might have to have more enforcement in a poorer neighborhood in that there are so many more offenses, unfortunately, occurring in those neighborhoods, and that's documented, that's the reality. And that's what you're trying to change. You're trying to make life in the poor minority neighborhoods as good as it is in other parts of the city that have much less crime and disorder. So what I am saying is that uh, in 2020, 2021, we've had an Etch-a-Sketch moment where we have totally erased, uh, there's a new term that's out there now, which I, 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 I'm fascinated with, uh, progressophobia. The idea that the progressives uh, basically have a fear of looking at anything that was successful in the past. They want, it to, they want the clock to start now. That's a mistake. We had a lot of successes in the 90s, 21st century community policing. So, so there might be some people who criticize what you're saying here, saying that, well, if you do what Commissioner Bratton is saying that police departments should do, it'll lead to policies like stop and frisk. How do you respond to that? Stop and frisk is an essential tool of American policing in New York City. Some other locations, it was overused. There's no denying that. That uh, I write about that extensively in my new book, The Profession. Matter of fact, in that book, The Profession, almost every issue that I can guarantee that you raise in this call, I speak to with examples as well as ideas about moving forward, learning from the past. So the idea of uh, stop, question, and frisk, everybody always leaves out question. It's not stop and frisk. It's stop, question, and frisk, uh, protected by a 1968 Supreme Court ruling, Terry versus Ohio. It is an essential tool of policing. You cannot police effectively without it. But the challenge is to ensure that it is done lawfully, that the officer has reasonable suspicion that a crime has, is, uh, or is about to be committed, and that he can articulate why he believes that. 
and he is authorized to stop a person and detain them for a period of time to question them. And if he feels that that person might present a danger to him, he has to be able to articulate why he has the authority to pat that person down and feel the outer closing. And there's no denying that uh, particularly the black community in New York City felt that in the years uh, uh, after 9-11, it was overused, even as the city was getting safer every year. Ended up with a court decision in which the police department was found to be basically engaging in a practice that was uh, 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 basically uh, found to be racially uh, inappropriate and basically disproportionate in terms of its impact on blacks. So there's the challenge that it's a tool that's uh, very effective when it's used appropriately. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to expand its use. There's not a police department in America that's not using it every day, but more of it is probably going to be necessary going forward. Will the public accept it, particularly the minority community? Probably not at this time, but as conditions get worse in American cities, and unfortunately my belief is they will get worse over the summer, uh, eventually uh, we will come out of it. People open their windows and yell out the window, we're, we're fed up, uh, we're, we're, we're not going to take this anymore, kind of like the movie Network. That's what happened in 1990. The American public rose up, political leadership, and said we're not going to take it anymore. But what's going to have to get, unfortunately, probably a lot worse before that because the memories of police abuse, police overuse of authority, police misuse of authority are so fresh, particularly in minority neighborhoods. And that's going to be the struggle to regain the trust of the community. But if we don't get a handle on the crime and disorder, uh, we're never going to regain the trust of the communities because they're going to feel that they're being policed inappropriately. In other words, not enough policing, not effective policing, and certainly not trustworthy policing. We're going to have more with former New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton coming up. We're going to talk about his book, The Profession, or on that, on America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Jeff Begay's back with Bill Bratton. So the, the book is called The Profession. Why did you feel right now was a good time to put your experience on paper and sell it to the public? Well, effectively, I thought 2016 was a good time to tell it because I was leaving as commissioner for the second time in New York. Crime was at historic lows. Uh, murders were down about 90 percent from uh, 1990. Overall crime, 80 percent. Crime in America overall was down about 40 percent. In New York City, every category of police activity was down dramatically. Arrests, summonses. Uh, use of force, shootings involving the police. We had, I believe, found a successful formula for reducing crime and disorder. And I used to predict without fear of contradiction that crime would never go up in New York City again. And boy, was I wrong. But the book took four years working with my uh, co-author, Peter Nobler, a great, great guy, a great researcher. As we had to travel around the country. We interviewed uh, 60 or 70 people in different cities where I had worked. That the book took four years to complete and fortunately for us that uh, uh, 
it was not done until after uh, the murder of George Floyd, because so much of the book focuses on uh, what America is now facing. But going back in this memoir, it's a 50-year memoir uh, of what has worked, what has not worked, why it didn't work, how it might work again. And it's a tutorial. It's a book on leadership. It's a uh, book of stories. Uh, there's some wonderful stories, wonderful people to meet. And it's a history through my uh, experiences and perspective of a profession I'm very proud of, one that 50 years ago was not a profession uh, in any way, shape, or form, but now is. And like all professions, it has its flaws. Like all professions, it's always changing, always reforming. So this period of time we're in now is probably going to be one of the most phenomenal change, change periods in the last 50 years. You'd have to go back to the 1970s to see a time when American policing was under such duress. And you'd have to go back to the period of 1990 to have a comparable period of crime situation in the sense of uh, uh, the fear of crime and the acceleration of it. So it's uh, a book I enjoyed very much living <laughs> and one that uh, uh, took a long time to write because there was a lot to write about. I've written a book on policing. Don't claim to know as much as you know on policing, that's for sure. But even in my book, I talk about your uh, touch on your career and how you, know, you were really an innovator, a reformer before being a reformer in law enforcement was the, the cool thing to do. Uh, on top of that, I think it's fair to say that you innovated as well. I think, uh, I, well, I, I appreciate that comment. and I would support it that uh, I, I do describe myself as a transformative leader, a reformer, reforming a profession that was badly flawed. And I think reforming it for the better. And along the way, met a lot of other like-minded police leaders who are good friends, and as well as uh, researchers, George Kelling, uh, James Wilson, authors of Broken Window, uh, Chuck Ramsey, a uh, very good friend and colleague, former chief in Washington and Philadelphia, and, in, and so many others. Uh, I'm a member of several organizations, Major City Chiefs, which is committed to reform, to the Police Executive Research Forum, which I joined in its infancy, and which is one of the leading uh, reform entities in American policing. And I've been fortunate to surround myself with and meet great people who, with working with them, we have created uh, a number of revolutions in American policing, including community policing, including CompStat, including predictive policing, now precision policing, that uh, many of those changes weren't developed elsewhere. They were developed within the police profession. And I'm proud to be associated with many of those. And some of them are criticized. Some of them uh, deserve to be commented upon and criticized. And I'm happy to meet the criticism. And uh, in every instance, we were well-intended. And uh, I think going forward, we're going to find to deal with the crises of today, and there are many of them, uh, we are going to have to look closely at what worked in the past because it, I, it's my prediction it will work again in the future. But we need to work harder at the essentiality of collaboration, finding common ground. You might be familiar with the book from the 70s, uh, the Boston uh, uh, segregate, desegregation issue around housing and schools, Peter Lucas's book, Common Ground. I read that when I was a young cop on the battle lines in Boston in the 70s, a horrific period of racial tension and violence. And that book has stayed with me forever. And it was all about the idea as a police leader that my role as a centrist, I'm not a Democrat, not a Republican, not on the left, not on the right, as a centrist, 
to get people onto common ground too. And I talk about this in the book, a term by a woman, a community actress I met in Los Angeles, Sweet Alice. And the idea of seeing each other, really seeing each other to understand why we have the feelings about each other, whether it's uh, animosity toward the police, whether it's uh, uh, implicit bias, racial bias. What, what are all those things and why do we have it? When we come back, more of my conversation with Bill Bratton. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Thanks for staying with us. Let's continue with Bill Bratton, former New York City Police Commissioner. As you talk about your career in policing and growing up in Boston, but is there a police tactic that you remember advocating for that you regret? Thinking back, the regrets I've had that I've expressed in other interviews uh, in, in, in my books is the and in my second book, Collaborative Parish, which is the idea of the essentiality of collaboration, of finding common ground, one of the eight or nine principles for effective collaboration is literally staying in the headlights of the people that you work for, in my case, working for mayors. And in the case of Giuliani, that uh, I not only did not stay in his headlights, I went over the guardrail, went down into ditch, rolled over and over, and I was gone. And I regret that because I think if I had managed to manage him better, uh, I think it might have ended better for me and the many people around me who left when I left. And it might have ended up better for <clears throat> New York if I could have tried to have influenced him to uh, be much more uh, embracing of the need to work, particularly with the minority communities in New York, because I think it's clearly understood that it was a fractured relationship uh, throughout his time in New York with the black community in particular, and that he did not encourage and actually discourage his commissioners from working with the leadership of that community. Uh, and a lot of that had to do, I think, with the terrible battles that he had with David Dinkins and the two elections that they uh, had fought with each other. And so the regrets I have are really around the idea of uh, not taking advantage of opportunities I have had to um, have had more influence in, for what I believe in. And I strongly believe in community policing, which interestingly enough, I find amazing is under attack, the concept of partnership with community to identify their priorities and problems and then working together, shared responsibility to fix them. Uh, attacks on broken windows, quality of life, because they are the essence of community policing. Because in broken windows, what are we addressing? What people call 311 about about that gang kicking up all night on the corner, about the prostitute using their doorway, about the guys smoking marijuana in the public housing projects outside their door. Uh, those are things that the police don't generate activity in their own. They're responding to somebody saying to the police, we need you, we need your help. So attacks on broken windows, uh, I, I also uh, uh, find fascinating in the sense of how they're misconstruing what the intent and effectively the effect of appropriate broken windows policing can do. How do you get back to community policing in this era of, you know, calls to defund the police? What we hear from police officers is that, you know, they have a lot to respond to. They don't have time to uh, get out and walk a beat like they used to. So how do you get back to community policing in this day and age? And is it important to return to those roots? That goes back to my earlier comment about the Etch-A-Sketch moment in New York City in 2016, as I left and my successor, Jimmy O'Neill, handpicked successor because he believed, as I did, as Mayor de Blasio believed, in the concept of neighborhood policing, about getting those caught back on the beat, particularly since we've reduced crime to such low levels. We have a, a whole citywide neighborhood policing 
plan implemented where there are volunteer officers who are called neighborhood coordination officers who deal with crime and disorder by effectively walking the beat, that they, they deal with people in their communities. And we developed a whole response structure to 911 calls surrounding and supporting them, modeled a lot after what I had found in LA when I went to LA. So I blended the best of what I found in LA and New York, and we were there. We were developing it, but in the current mayoral election, listening to the eight candidates that uh, people are voting for them today, not one of them acknowledged uh, the hard work that went into creating that program, the initiative. Uh, what they're talking about in some respects is creating what already exists. And it's going back to the term that was coined, I think, by uh, Bill Maher, that uh, uh, progressophobia, that so many of the progressives basically refused to acknowledge that there were many good things happening in policing in many communities. And that's going to be uh, part of the frustration going forward. In many communities, the issues that exist in many large and mid-sized cities are not felt the same way. So that the latest polling, for example, uh, nationwide polling shows that police have 68% public support. There's almost no other public entity that has that type of uh, broad-based support. Is it diminished when you poll African-Americans or Latinos? Yes, but the, interestingly enough, the majority are still expressing support for police and the need for police. And that pushes back against the defund the police movement, a political hashtag that a lot of the politicians jumped on very quickly and they jumped on the bandwagon too quickly and tried to jump off it as fast as they could when they understood that the uh, progressive uh, component that had advanced the, the, the idea were serious about reducing the size of police forces, were serious about abolishing police. You can imagine that. So from President Biden on down, you see very few uh, political supporters uh, uh, for that term defund the police. Are they supportive of some of the intent of that, the idea of things that police do that people think we do badly, having some other entity take them over? Police would love to be uh, released from the responsibility to deal with the homeless, to deal with the mentally ill, to deal with the uh, drug addicted. Uh, those are the areas where they get into the most trouble and for which they have the least training. And the irony is that police have become the safety net to catch these three phenomenal failures of our society over a 50 year period to deal effectively with them. Uh, we let all the mentally ill out of the institutions in the 70s, well intended. And where'd they go? Onto the streets. What did they become? The homeless population. If you look at it, there was no such thing as a homeless population before the 70s. We created it. Who ended up dealing with it? The police, because we police the streets. The narcotics issue, we're now in the midst of a phenomenal narcotics problem that's taking tens of thousands of lives every year. They were paying almost no attention to the opioid crisis. And thirdly, we're engaged in a deinstitutionalization, once again, of our prisons. We are letting too many people out of prison too fast with no place for them to go, no services for them, no housing for them. And where are they ending up? On the streets. So why does New York, Washington, Los Angeles, why do the streets look as troubled and as fearful as they do? We have a 50-year failure of government to deal with those three intractable problems, and who's asked to deal with it? The police. And we are really not ever trained well enough for it, not funded enough. I have an expression I now use, refund the police. We can do that job if you want us to, but you're gonna have to fund us a lot better than you do, and you're gonna also have to create extraordinary collaborations with the doctors for the mentally ill, with the doctors for the uh, drug addicted, with basically the prison authorities and others who deal with those who've been incarcerated. And you're gonna also be surprised to find that major city chiefs support the concept of effectively reducing our prison populations. A lot of people did not need to go to jail. They needed to go to mental health institutions, 
that were not there. They needed to go to drug rehabilitation that was not there. So prisons effectively became a dumping ground for all of those poor souls. That's why 50% of the people in prison have significant mental illnesses, something like 70% when they go in have significant drug problems. And what do we expect when we let them out in a hurry with no resources to assist them when they come out of prison? They end up back in the safety net that the police provide. Sorry for that long-winded harangue, but uh, you know, police get blamed for so much, but uh, there's blame to be spread around and a lot of it needs to go to who the police work for. The police work for the people who elect the politicians, who direct the policies and laws the police are expected to enforce. So if you want to get serious about solving these problems, uh, you start at the top. Uh, what's the old expression, the fish rots from the top, from the head down? Well, in terms of a lot of rot in our society and decay starts with our political leaders. Bill Bratton's book is called The Profession, a Memoir of Community Race and the Arc of Policing in America. Commissioner Bratton, thank you. Thank you. And despite uh, that uh, long harangue, uh, I'm an optimist that we will get through this crisis as we have. And if we're smart this time, we'll get through it in a way that we emerge a much better society, much better police and much better government. And that we are dealing with those problems I've just articulated in a much more effective way. That was Bill Bratton, who, along with Peter Nobler, wrote The Profession, a memoir of community, race, and the arc of policing in America. More to come on America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. This week, the Biden administration focused on crime prevention. As cities across America see spikes in violent crime, especially gun violence. For folks at home, here's what you need to know. I've been at this a long time. And there are things we know that work that reduce gun violence and violent crime. Background checks, purchasing a firearm are important ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. No one needs to have a weapon that can fire over 30, 40, 50, even up to 100 rounds. Community policing and programs that keep neighborhoods safe and keep folks out of trouble. These efforts work. They save lives. But over time, these policies were gutted and woefully underfunded. In our Conversation today, we talked about our strategy to supercharge what works while we continue to push the Congress to act on sensible gun violence legislation. First, we discussed cracking down, as you heard from the Attorney General, on rogue gun dealers. We know that if there is a strict enforcement of background checks, then fewer guns get into the hands of criminals. Background checks have thus far kept more than three million guns out of the hands of felons, convicted felons, fugitive, domestic abusers, and others prohibited from being able to purchase a gun. And there's still too many loopholes in that system. And today, enough rogue gun dealers feel like they, they can get away with selling guns to people who aren't legally allowed to own them. My message to you is this. We'll find you. 
and we will seek your license to sell guns. We'll make sure you can't sell death and mayhem on our streets. It's an outrage. It has to end, and we'll end it, period. We discussed disrupting illegal gun trafficking. As part of our strategy, the Justice Department is creating five new strike forces to crack down illegal gun trafficking in the Carters, supplying weapons to cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and the Bay Area. With these strike forces, local and federal law enforcement and prosecutors are going to be able to better coordinate the prosecution of illegal gun trafficking across city and state lines. So, illegal guns sold from the back door of a gun shop in Virginia don't end up in a murder scene in Baltimore. And if they do, then local and federal law enforcement can better coordinate to trace illegal gun sales back to a shady gun dealer and hold them accountable. Let's show the world and show ourselves that democracy works, that we can come together as one nation. We can do this and save lives. That is this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America Change Forever. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.